Welcome back to the castle of Gretchen Hexenkopf. Episode 24. The Darkest of Darknesses. The orphans stand at the door of the witch's castle and watch Hazel Peachwood pull with all her might on the brass ring that hangs from the mouth of the brass gargoyle. But the door won't budge. Even after the rest of the orphans take hold of the ring and pull and pull and pull. Maybe it's locked. It's not. And the door suddenly creaks open with a whine almost immediately after Lump suggested that it might be locked. It was just the challenge Hazel needed to give the pull one more good oomph. Well, I suppose it wasn't locked. Of course not. A witch wants to make it easy to get into her castle, so it's easy for her to plop you into her cauldron. Suddenly, the orphans realize that the door doesn't lead into the castle. At least, not in the way they thought it would. Instead of opening up into a grand wicked ballroom, or into a fiendish workshop of necromancy, it opens up into something far worse. A steep ramp that descends into the darkest of darknesses. The orphans pass through the castle door and into the darkness, standing shoulder to shoulder. But this lasts only a moment because the ramp on which they creep corkscrews downward and the walls on either side narrow in on them as they descend until they're walking single file. Finally, after three full spirals of descent, the ramp dumps them into a corridor. Candlelight flickers from the blood-red candles that are held by wall-mounted sconces. Finally, some darkness. You mean light. There's a generous sense of relief among the orphans until they set their eyes on the sources of the light. The sconces are either shaped like hands, and the candles rest on an outstretched palm, or they're grasped tightly like a dagger. And if the sconces aren't shaped like hands, they're shaped like heads of people, and the candles balance atop the heads or on the surface of an outstretched tongue. Maybe it would be better to walk in the dark. Yeah, the dark. <laughs> the dark. Only a witch's castle would make me favor the dark over the light. Despite the grotesque candle holders, the orphans continue through the castle's flickering light. The wooden beams overhead cross every which way but square, emphasizing the crooked nature of the castle. The corridor is a meandering maze that leads the orphans through all manner of rooms. A floor-to-ceiling library of spells, charms, and incantations. A greenhouse of peculiar herbs, mosses, and fungi. An aquarium and terrarium of crickets, toads, newts, bats, and mice. A storage space for jars filled with disembodied animal parts. Legs, tongues, tails, eyeballs, teeth, fingers, toes, hearts, bones, and many other parts that seem oddly familiar, yet entirely unfamiliar. A room of broken mirrors. A room of stopped clocks. 
parlor of partially reanimated corpses, a second parlor of stone sculptures of a variety of Whisperland's creatures, though it is possible they'd been turned to stone. A room filled with a whole village of card houses, each one more shaky and wobbly and impossible than the next. And finally, an observatory, which contains a whole party of wicked revelry. The space is a grand rotunda, and moonlight spills in through the open oculus in the center of the dome. A rickety wooden staircase twists up to a platform just beneath the oculus, where a brass telescope is mounted on a stone pillar. Wheels and levers and springs and gears cover the stargazing contraption. At the ground level, stacks of books and rolls of parchment fill the space. This is a room of great toil, a room in which someone has gone to great trouble to study, to plan, to plot. And it's in this room that the orphans catch up with the goblins, <coughs> as well as Snook the Fool. <laughs> and the goblins and Snook are now in the company of several tuxedo-wearing bat-winged toads and a beautiful, hauntingly beautiful woman. But the truth is, she only appears to be a woman. She wears an elegant burgundy dress, and it fits her the way feathers fit a swan. Her shadowy black hair, as thick and as full as a sable centaur's tail, stretches to the middle of her back, where the ends curl up just so. And her vanilla skin is the perfect foil to this shock of black hair and to her signature burgundy gown. No candles flicker in the corridor near the entrance of the observatory, since the light might interfere with the viewing of the moon and of the stars. This is lucky for Hazel and her orphan brothers, because the darkness, along with the stacks of books and parchments and hanging tapestries, conceal them from view and allow them refuge to watch this wicked scene unfold. It wasn't our fault. Time is my enemy, and you and your horde seem to be taking my enemy's side. We were being followed by some rabble-rousing orphans. We had to deal with them, Gretchen. The orphans in the corridor go bug-eyed. This is the Gretchen Hexenkopf they've been hearing about. They are now officially in the presence of a witch. <laughs> Seems like your rabble was roused more than any orphans got dealt with. Enlighten me. How does a goblin deal with his or her rabble rousers? Uh, well, we, uh, we, uh, we didn't actually, uh... We dealt with them like a tornado. A tornado? Oh, a tornado. <laughs> That's what? We circled round and doubled back and twisted them all up like a tornado. <laughs> And how did that work out? We're here, ain't we? Gretchen looks up at the moon through the oculus, and then back at the goblins. So you are. Gretchen Hexenkopf begins slowly rubbing her hands together, as if loosening her joints. But you are late, which makes you something of a set of rabble-rousers yourselves. Ooh-wee! 
rabble-rousing goblins. Mm. Gretchen raises a hand and gestures to a piano in the corner of the observatory. It immediately begins playing. Gretchen's gesturing hand continues to move as if following the rise and fall of the music. A light whirlwind then funnels into the observatory through the oculus. The goblins have a better than average notion of what's coming. And they don't like it. The goblins' pleas quickly fade beneath the sounds of book pages riffling, parchment blowing about, telescopes swiveling on their hinges, and the croaking of tuxedo-wearing bat-winged toads. The whirlwind picks up speed and with a flick of Gretchen's wrist, becomes a full-blown, twisting, turning tornado. No bigger than a cauldron, but just big enough to engulf the upper half of a goblin. Which it does. It plops down over Boggart and cranks him at the waist a few dozen times. Until the tornado's winds slow back to a whirlwind before fading into stillness, punctuated by a couple of toad croaks. At this point, the cracking, contorted bones of Boggart can be heard crickle, rattle, crunch. The nasty goblin does not perish in this horrific punishment, but his posture is decidedly worse than before. He looks very much like a fish hook. And every time he moves, walks, leans, or bends, the crackling sounds of bones offend the eardrums of whomever's near. I hope I won't have to summon any more winds to deal with rabble-rousing. Never, Gretchen. Not ever. Then let us move on to more pressing matters. What have you for me? Unlike Boggart, Slagrit and Eek are as of yet unburdened by fishhook crookedness. So they creep to the woogle in the flatbed wheelbarrow, loaded with the burlap sack. They loosen the knot on the sack and reveal inside a man and a woman, two denizens of Cobbler's Gulch. Mr. and Mrs. Brickbuckle. What do you think they want with a couple of porters? We shh. And how many do they have? Three. Ages? Twelve, eight, and girls. Four. She gestures to an empty bottle that's tethered to Boggart's waist, just above his now-twisted hip. Slagrit detaches it and hands it to Gretchen. Gretchen gives it to Snook the Fool and whispers something to him. He cackles, of course. (laughs) And then he disappears through a narrow passage in the far end of the observatory. Gretchen Hexenkopf then turns her attention to Mr. and Mrs. Brickbuckle. Now, as for you two... Her eyes filled with hatred and hunger, and she seems to fall into a hypnotic dither. Upended tails and a lopsided gut, matted beards and horns that butt, cud and hooves and bleating cries become the beast with slit-like eyes. With each word of the spell, the potter's bodies warp and bend. Their skin sprouts coarse hair and their cries turn to high-pitched squeals. before finally becoming bleats. Goats. She turns them into bleeding goats, 
as Mr. and Mrs. Brickbuckle wobble about the observatory, attempting to get their footing on the uneven stone floor. The menagerie of goats Hazel has seen the last few days wobble their ways through her mind. It's this witch, this Gretchen Hexenkopf, who's been behind the attacks on Cobbler's Gulch. Sure, the goblins have done the dirty work of abducting the baker's wife, snatching up Madame Drax, kidnapping the Brickbuckles, and who knows how many others. But it's at the behest of this witch. And certainly, it must have taken a lot of fairy dust to get the goblins to do her bidding. Just like Wooden Wolf said, fairies are not to be trifled with. It would take a powerful creature indeed, a creature like this Gretchen Hexenkopf, to imprison a fairy. Hazel turns to the orphans and bids them to follow her back down the corridor, out of earshot of the observatory. Does anyone else think the fool went to get more fairy dust? Oh, sure. Yes. Sure. Yeah, no, he definitely did. Yep, yep. Definitely did. Of course. Flying flop doodles, yes! Nope. He means yes. Do you know what this means? There is a fairy in this castle. With that, Hazel darts off into the candlelit dimness. The other orphans barely able to keep up with her. In fact, they can't keep up with her. They don't. And it's just a snap before they've lost her. Before they've lost Hazel Peachwood to the darkest of darknesses. Thanks for listening. On the next Cobbler Sculpture, the Opal Room. In the meantime, think twice before you rouse any rabbles. The repercussions may be pernicious. Pernicious.